Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Topel and Laban, and Hatzerot and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the Lord had commanded him to give them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtarot and Edrei. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. And Father, I ask that you now would expound your word on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are into Deuteronomy. We're going to go ahead and start rolling into this book. We'll see how far we get before Africa calls. Still waiting for Africa to call, but I'm sure they will. In Acts chapter 20, we read one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Let me just read it to you. On the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So you can see why this is one of my favorites. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, Luke writes, and there was a young man named Eutychus, whose name tragically and ironically means fortunate, sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. He was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him and after embracing him said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Roughly a 24-hour sermon <laughs> with a, break, uh, a quick break for resurrection and a snack. But you know what? That's what the word of God does. It'll kill the old self, but you will come away alive and greatly comforted. I love the story. Eutychus dies and is resurrected. The word has a way of doing that. The word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, it'll kill you dead and bring you back alive. In 1955, Pastor Clinton Lacey set a world record for the longest sermon ever preached, 48 hours and 18 minutes. So don't ever tell me I've gone too long. <laughs> Afterwards, someone apparently thought it was time for a new beatitude. Blessed is the preacher whose train of thought has a caboose. In 1978, the record was bested by Dr. Donald Spider-Man Thomas, you can't make this stuff up. He nearly doubled the record, going for a breathtaking 93 hours. Now, in 2015, 31-year-old 30, Pastor Zach Zinder in Mount Dora, Florida, cobbled together 48 sermons, and he went 53 hours and 18 minutes. Nice try, but he was still 40 hours sh uh, short of Dr. Spider-Man. Long sermons, long Preachers, and the question is not how long can a pastor preach? The question is, does he have anything worthwhile to say? 
You can go on and on. You can cobble together sermons. You can spend the time. You can keep your people in the room locking the doors and rolling on and on and on. You can filibuster a church, but is it worthwhile? Do you have something worth saying, worth hearing? Paul understood the process. I guarantee you Paul's preaching late into the night and right on to daybreak the next day was worthwhile. In fact, that's a sermon I'd like to hear. I'm sure it's in the archives in heaven. We'll be able to give a listen to it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We even see it in this culture. We see it in the world. It seems to happen around, comes around again and again in societies who would leave the word and die in believing. Thing about the word is it will kill you dead, but it will raise you back to life, but walk away from it and you're just gonna be left for dead. Paul knew God's word was more than worth the while. Do you know that this morning? That this word is worth our time? That the Lord himself in Isaiah 55 verse 10 said, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's God's promise. Feed on my word, come and get it the Lord might say. It'll kill the old man or woman, but it will take root. It will sprout life. It will bear fruit, as we've been talking about, within your within. It will work in you and work on you. And for the single-hearted, mission-minded Paul, nothing mattered more than the preaching of the word. Nothing mattered more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he solemnly commanded Timothy, young pastor Timothy, Preach the word. The book of Deuteronomy is the longest single sermon in the Bible. The whole book is a sermon. Uh, At least the first 33 of 34 chapters, it is one long sermon of Moses there on the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. He undertakes, as the Bible tells us, in the 40th year of, On the first day of the 11th month, what does that mean? 40 years out from Egypt. 40 years out from Egypt now in the 11th month, which, by the way, is the last month of Moses' life. And he undertakes now to expound the word of God, everything God had told them, everything he had taught them. And we've been studying all of this through Torah. Everything out of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, all of the law, now Moses is coming back to it. This marvelous book has been called the preached law because it's Moses doing a sermon on all that God has told him. Moses is now preaching and teaching, articulating and applying the word of God. 
Again, you understand that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they're packed full with the works and the words of God. But when you come to Deuteronomy, it is the preaching of Moses about the works and the words of God. So now we get to application time. And this is no Guinness world record-breaking stunt. This is no seeing how long can we go. And by the way, don't expect Deuteronomy to be a boring duplication of law, some dull oration. Moses spends this last month of his life on what is holy worthwhile, very nearly to his last breath, preaching on the precipice of the promised land. I was thinking about that this week. I want to go out that way. I really do. My wife has heard me say it. I want to teach on a Sunday and be caught up on a Monday. That's my plan, that my last words would be his, that the last thing I do here would, would be to preach and teach the word of God. By the way, by the way, Monday, September 6th, is Labor Day. Yay. <laughs> but you know what else it is? It's Yom Teruah. It's the day of trumpets. And uh, I think we're going to celebrate that if I can get to Africa and back before then. And this year, what's interesting to me is Yom Teruah, day of trumpets, actually begins the next Shemitah. What's that? It's the next sabbatical year. Every seventh year is the Shemitah, the sabbatical year, the Sabbath year, the year that they were supposed to take off as a full-on holiday. So I'm going to do that. Starting September 6th, I'm off for the year. You can join me if you like. I'm kidding. But we're going to celebrate Yom Teruah, Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets. It's that day that reminds us, and I'm not saying that September 6th is the rapture of the church. I'm really hoping it's before then. But what I am saying is we're going to celebrate it because the idea of the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive will rise and we will be with them and we'll be with the Lord forever. All of that, it's symbolized in that holiday, I believe. And so we're going to celebrate that when it comes up to us. But Deuteronomy, back to Deuteronomy, this is a pivotal book in the Bible. Some things to note about it, a few facts if you want to jot some of this down. Deuteronomy is among the three most quoted Older Testament books in the New Testament. You have more Hebrew scriptures from Deuteronomy in the New Testament than from any other book with the exception of Psalms and Isaiah. Psalms, Isaiah, Deuteronomy. If you ask people, what are your favorite three Older Testament books? People might say, I love the Psalms. Oh, Isaiah, the prophecies of Messiah. Yes, and Deuteronomy. Who says that? but it is used. In fact, it's quoted over 100 times in the New Testament. Remarkably relevant then to our Christian faith to be quoted so much. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy to counter the spiritual attacks of the devil in the desert. And Jesus drew from Deuteronomy to highlight the single greatest commandment of them all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Peter realized an awesome prophecy that draws right out of the pages of Deuteronomy, a prophecy of the Christ, quoting from Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren, and to him you shall give heed. Peter adds, to everything he says to you, and of course, talking about Jesus. Luke 
saw a pattern that Moses commanded, declares in Deuteronomy. He saw this pattern on full display in the first century Christian community. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. Moses says, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. And Luke writes in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they were to be distributed to each as any had need. Paul made use of Deuteronomy more than any other Older Testament book. Paul quotes Deuteronomy in all of his many letters in the New Testament. He especially loves Deuteronomy chapter 30 and chapter 32, which we see played out in Romans 10 and 11, and in 1 Corinthians 10 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Deuteronomy 32 has actually even been called Romans in a Nutshell because Paul draws so heavily from it. And we're gonna see all of this. We'll, we'll come back, we'll talk about it. Not this morning, but, but as the Lord gives time. Today I want you to note three things, three things as we get started that will help introduce the book. Number one, the title, the title. And then secondly, we'll talk about the thread. And finally, the theme. Title, thread, and theme. Let's consider the title for a minute. It's not what you think. What we read, when you look at the top of page one here in your Bibles, you see that name, that, that word Deuteronomy. It sounds imposing, honestly. Genesis, cool, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It just sounds like a big, thick college textbook. You know, you look at it, you think, can we just go on to Joshua? Because that sounds more fun. Deuteronomy, it's a kind of name like I said, I think of college textbooks. I think of, of buying one of those books back when I was in college and keeping it as clean and neat and spot-free as possible so I could sell it back at the end of the semester to buy the most recent Huey Lewis album. <laughs> I advise you to tear into this book, not to rip it, but to notate and highlight and underline and cross-reference and consume everything in here. This is so valuable and so significant for our lives. Deuteronomy, the, the Greek title, that's Deuteronomy is Greek, Deuteronomion. It, it comes from the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek about the third century BC, the Septuagint, and in that translation, they were trying to come up with a name for it, and they decided, let's call it Deuteronomion. Let's give it that name. The problem is the name itself is unintentionally misleading if misunderstood, and it has been over the years. Where do they come up with Deuteronomion, and what does that even mean? Well, they came up with it from chapter 17, verse 18 and 19, Deuteronomy 17, 18 says, it shall come about when he, now this is talking about the future kings of Israel. And so there's an insightful word that, that Moses gives when he says, in the future, should you have a king, that you, you have the king do this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up. And so what a great idea. Moses says, take the law. Have the king sit down in the presence of the Levites and write his own copy. 
And then he'll have his own copy right there, his own scroll in his palace, in his home, wherever he's at. And he can pour over that and think through it as he rules, as he leads the people. He'll lead by the word of God. And that's the idea there, and it's a great idea. But when you read in verse 18, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. It's Mishnah Hatzot Torah. Mishnah, does that sound familiar? Mishnah, the Mishnah, the oral tradition of the Hebrews. Mishnah means repetition. Repetition. So he shall make a repetition of Torah law. That's what Mishnah Chazot Torah means here in verse 18. What we see, a copy of this law, a repetition of this law. But as they translated it into the Greek, they came up with deuteronomion. Deutero meaning second, and then you've got the word nomion, which normally means copy, a second copy. So make yourself a second copy. The first copy they'll have there in the temple, the second copy, your copy, you write that down. Make yourself a second copy of the law. But in some cases, it can also imply second deuteronomion law, a second law. There are critics and scholars today who still try to make the case that Deuteronomy is a second law, that it's secondary to the first law, an appendage, if you will, more law that's being dumped out. Now, there are some additional laws in play here, some things that Moses brings and applies from the law of God because they're gonna be now in the land, not in the wilderness. But this is not the second law. It is the articulation, as I said before, and the application of the law spoke by God in the wilderness, but now preached and applied by Moses, which is pretty much what we do every Sunday. We open up the Bible, we read it, and then I preach and apply it or teach and apply it. And we think it through together. That's what Moses here now is doing with the rest of Torah is he's preaching and applying it. Let me give you a basic outline for Deuteronomy, Deuteronomion, where again, we get the title. By the way, it's not the Hebrew title. I'll tell you that in a second. The basic outline for the book, four parts, chapters one through four, a retrospective of the journey. One through four is a retrospective, and you'll see that. In fact, you're gonna see that part of that this morning. Retrospective, Moses is gonna look back and he's gonna track the journey all the way to where they are right now in four chapters, Retrospective. Secondly, chapters 5 through 26 is, a, is the relevance of the law. You could say a review of the law, but it's more than that. It's the relevancy of the law as Moses takes and applies the law. Chapters 5 through 26. Third part, chapter 27 through 30 is revelation. And this is where it gets really exciting because it's a revelation of Israel's future. In terms of blessings and curses, what will happen, you will read things in Deuteronomy that we have seen happen in the centuries that followed. It's pretty stunning prophecy in this book. In fact, the first time we went through this 16, 17 years ago, I was shocked at how prophetic a book Deuteronomy was. This was one of those, I, I've mentioned there have been a few books where in, in our desire to walk all the way through the scriptures, before we got to different ones, there are certain ones that freaked me out. Revelation, we conquered that a long time ago. You know, but, well, we didn't conquer it. But Revelation, we went to and saw the application and, and worked through. But no, there were certain books when we first started back at the beginning of the bridge that I dreaded, and this was one of them. Deuteronomy, big, thick textbook. How am I gonna teach that, Lord? It's amazing. It's one of my favorites. 
one of my 66 favorite books <laughs> in the Bible. And then finally, so 1 through 4, a retrospective. 5 through 26, the relevance of the law. 27 through 30, a revelation of Israel's future. And finally, chapters 34 through, or 31 through 34, you could just call it a requiem of Moses. Because in it, you're going to hear his final words and his last song. Guys singing in the last year of his life, 120 years old. I'd love to hear that song. Abba, I belong. Anyway, okay, so final words, last song, and he gives a farewell blessing, and that's it. That's the whole book. Now, there are some additional laws, as I said, at play, which would have their place in the new Jewish homeland, but I really like the older Hebrew title for the book. I like, just go to, the, go to the original. What was the Hebrew title? What did they call it? They called it Elah HaDevarim. Elah HaDevarim. Just remember Devarim. Devarim means words. It's the first three words in Hebrew, first four words in English. These are the words. These are the words. That is what the old rabbis called it. Or today they'll just call it HaDevarim, the words. The preached law. Again, Moses expounding God's truth, and what he expounds is profound. Hadevarim. So that's the title. Secondly, note the thread. The thread that weaves its way all throughout this book. These are words to take to heart. And I would tell you that's the key word of Hadevarim is heart. Heart. This is not a dry, lifeless book, as some may have assumed if you've never read it, if you've avoided it, because that's ah, just the law again. My friends, the word is heart. You're going to find this thread woven into the fabric of the sermon. Look at this real quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Flip over there. I'm going to run through a few verses for you just to see. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Deuteronomy 4, 9. He says, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Down in verse 29 of chapter four. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you search for him with all your heart and your soul. Verse 39 of chapter 4, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Take it to heart. Moses will say that over and over in the book. Go over to chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Now look at verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Verse 16, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Skip over to chapter 11, verse 18. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. Note the difference. Heart first, then soul. Soul, your mind, your reason, your intellect. But man, they need to get to your heart. These words need to be on your spirit, not just in your head. This isn't about book knowledge or a college course. This is about heart level life change. 
That's what Deuteronomy is for. That's what it's about. Take it to heart, Moses says. Take it to heart. 49 times in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to speak of the heart. He will address the heart. The word heart, as you see it in Hebrew, is labab. Labab. Think of lobe, the lobes of the heart, the labab. But heart to a Jewish person doesn't just mean doesn't just mean the, the fleshly beating, pumping muscle in your chest. Labab also means the inner man, the inner woman. Take it to heart. Impress these words upon your heart and your soul. Heart first, get it into your spirit, receive it willingly, and it will flood your mind and keep your soul. Now take these two things and combine them, the title and the thread, and what do you get? These are the words for the heart. These are the words for the heart. And that's what Moses' intention is. In fact, go back to chapter one and listen again to verse five. This is interesting to me. It says, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. To expound. Well, that sounds very collegiate. Yeah, if you read it that way, but the word in Hebrew is be'er, and it means to engrave. Moses sought to engrave this word. Where? Upon the heart. To get it into the spirit of the man, the spirit of the woman. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 46. Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. And then Moses says, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. It's not an idle word. It's like, not like, like sitting at a, a stoplight and your car's idling and all you're doing is shooting methane gas into the atmosphere. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not an idle word. This is dynamic. This is life altering. And as a strong beating heart is needed for every one of our lives, Moses says, these are heart words that I'm giving you. Heart words. And you need them to live. Jesus would put it this way, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you like to see God someday? Would you like to know your creator and actually see him face to face? The pure in heart shall see God. By the way, I mentioned this on Wednesday night. Why is it heart? Why is it blessed are the pure in heart, not blessed are the pure in vocabulary or, or blessed are the pure in behavior or the pure in actions? And the answer is simple. If God's got your heart, the rest will follow. If he has your heart, he has all of you. So Psalm 119, verse 9, David writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And in verse 11 he says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. How's your heart this morning? How's your heart when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to trusting in him, when it comes to obedience and righteousness versus sin and rebellion? How's your heart today? Is the word engraved upon it as Moses seeks to do in Deuteronomy? Please understand, what, what took me years to get, truly, lesson I have talked about is take, it took both of us years of religion to finally figure it out that it wasn't about religion. Years in the church to finally understand that it is always about the heart where God is concerned. 
It's always about who you really are and who he is and the two coming together. It's not about rules and regulations for the sake of keeping rules and regulations. This is not a second law to weigh you down. These are words to take to heart. Title and thread. These are the words, the thread for the heart. And then number three, the theme. The theme. We're not even a half an hour into this, so I'm gonna pull a Wednesday night on you. Before we get to the theme, hold tight. I wanna run down a little bit of what we are getting into. So beginning in verse five, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. By the way, the land that God promised to Israel, actually promised to Abraham, is so huge. You realize that it included all of Lebanon, even, even the promise to Moses and the people, included all the way up to the border of Lebanon and Turkey. It included almost all of Syria, and then coming down to the Sea of Galilee. But God's promise to Abraham is much bigger than that. It includes Lebanon and Syria and Iraq today, all the way out to the Euphrates River, dropping down. It, I mean, it's just a huge, massive amount of land. And here, even, the Lord is saying, set your sights to that. Verse 8, see, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to them, and to their descendants after them. But I really like this in verse 6. Moses says, God spoke to us at Horeb saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. But after two years out from Egypt, finally the Lord said, long enough, you're ready. Head on out. Long enough. Remember what Moses already asserted here in Deuteronomy. Verse two, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, edge of the promised land. You've been here long enough, the Lord says. Now let's take that short hop right on into the promised land and off they go. But verse three tells us in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month, 11th month 11 days, as we talked about, in the wilderness turned into 40 years, 38 years actually from Sinai to the promised land. It's amazing to me. Chapter 2, verse 14, tells us the time it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zareh, that's the Wadi Al-Arish Al in Egypt, into the promised land was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. That, so 11 days to Kadesh Barnea, a couple of weeks, and they were there. And then 38 years, they would walk. They would wander as it were. He said, long enough. And then it took 38 more years. And the point is this. Listen, understand, get this. I'm learning this. Oh, am I learning this? That the Lord's delays are not his denials. In your life, in my life, the Lord's delays are not his denials. Oftentimes, we will think they are. Oh, God just said no. Maybe he's just delaying. In fact, often God will delay for the sake of discipline. 
As a father loves a son, so the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He'll delay for discipline. Sometimes he'll delay for the development of our faith. That the longer it takes to get where we're going, the more time God has to work on the heart and to develop our faith. Sometimes God will even delay for the sake of his own glory because the delay produces a greater praise, a greater worship, a greater uh, exposition or expose, if you will, of his glory. But his delays are not his denials. This people are about to go in the land. They did go in to the promised land, though it would take them 38 years longer than what they originally thought. Verse nine, so I spoke to you at that time saying, Moses saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. I've said that to my kids. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. But how can I bear alone the load and burden of you and your strife, Moses said. So choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes and I will appoint them as your heads. You answered and said, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties, of tens, and officers for your tribes. And then I charged your judges at that time, saying, here are the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countryman or the alien who is with him. Judge righteously. That's worth circling. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case is too hard to you. You shall bring to me and I will hear it. Moses said, I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. So not only had God said it's long enough, but now we see leadership enjoined. Leadership enjoined. What a concept. Judge righteously. Wouldn't that be a great idea in the courts of America today? Just judge righteously. Judgment based on truth, not on case law or legal precedent or worse than that, loopholes. Judgment based on righteousness. Again, Jesus said, and we read this Wednesday night, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. We're talking about the kind of judgment that is based on the fear of God rather than on the politics, impulses, or worse, the fear of man. Just judge righteously. And so Moses set up, and you may recall that, set up those judges for Israel. They leave Sinai. He sets up these judges, and the next thing we see is the land encountered, verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites. Just as the Lord our God had commanded us, And so we came to Kadesh Barnea. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then all of you approached me and said, well, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us the word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me, and I took 12 of your men, one man for each tribe, 
And they turned and they went up into the hill country and they came to the valley of Eshkol. You may remember that means cluster, great cluster valley. They spied it out. They took some of the fruit, verse 25, of the land in their hands and they brought it down to us and they brought us back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. The land was encountered. They're right there. They send spies in to see it. Now, whose idea was that? If you recall, we saw this before and there seems to be a contradiction here in the scriptures. Whose idea really was it to send in the clowns, the the, the spies? Who, Who did this? Apparently, it was the people's idea. Wait a minute. Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2, and I remember this, Pastor. (laughs) Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. Wait, in Numbers, it sounds like God tells them to do it. But as Moses expounds that happening, begins to teach on it, he says, No, you came to me, and you said, Hey, can we send in spies? Which one's correct? Did the Lord command it, or did the people ask for it? And the answer is both, both. The people devised the idea. The Lord approved it. They said, hey, we want to send in spies. Moses says, Lord, and he goes, yep, go ahead. And it makes me wonder why. Because the spies were the problem, as you recall. The reason I say send in the clowns, because 10 of the 12, their faith failed. They caused the faith of entire Israel to fail. Why, Lord? Why not just go up and fight before they've seen it? Because when they see it, they falter. Why would you do this, Lord? Why would you approve such an idea? Two reasons. He knew what they would see. He knew they would see a land of fatness and fruit, And a land of big fat dudes. He knew they would see the beauty of the land, but God also knew, as he often does with us, that they would see the giants, that they would see the fortresses, that they would see the people there in the land already. And God allowed them to see both because the question was and always is, will you trust God or your own eyes? Are you going to look at the land and say, it is beautiful, as he said, let's take it? Or are you going to look at the land and say, big fat dudes, run away? The choice is always left to us by faith. So verse 26, Moses says, yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents. Worst thing that can possibly happen, and yet it tends to mark even our tents, our homes Today, the grumbling, it never happens here. You always wait till you get home and the door closes and you go, all right. (laughs) Grumbling in your tents, you said, because the Lord hates us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Oh yeah, that was his idea. Verse 28, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt. By the way, note the use of the word hearts there. This is the people's reaction. Their hearts are melting rather than strong, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. Beside, we saw the sons of the Anakim there, the Skywalkers. Verse 29, then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Remember that, guys? And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you? 
just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Brothers and sisters, every day we have a choice. Every day of our lives, we can trust God for a land of fatness and fruit or we can fear big fat dudes. It's, it's our call. But the Apostle Paul encourages us, we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Hebrews 11, 1. Without, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews eleven six, 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Every morning you wake up, you look at the land. What do you see? Do you see the promises of God or do you see the precariousness of where you're headed? 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what we're called to. Verse 34 Then the Lord heard the sound of your words and he was angry and took an oath saying, not one of these men, this evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers except Caleb, the son of Yephuna, he shall see it and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot because he has followed the Lord fully. I love that. God is not looking for half-hearted followers. He is looking for faithful disciples. He wants us to trust him and go forward regardless of what our eyes might see. And in verse 37, Moses says, and the Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. Hang on a second. (laughs) Moses, Moses. You hear what he just said? I'm not going into the promised land because of you. God was angry with me on your account. I'm like, wait a minute, is the man of God Blaming the people here? Is the deliverer saying, your fault? Is he not yet taken responsibility for his own faithlessness when he struck the rock twice? Remember when God said, speak to the rock? But Moses got all up in their faces and struck the rock and yelled at them. And God said, you misrepresented me. Moses, you're not going into the land. You just lost the land. And now Moses says, on your account... Is he blaming the people? And the answer is no, no. The Lord was angry on your account. Doesn't mean he was angry because of you, but the Lord was angry for your sake. Do you get the difference there? God was angry with me for your sake because I didn't treat you the way he was. I didn't treat you the way he would. So Moses is not blaming the people. He is, he is, in essence, saying you don't mess with God's people. And I didn't treat you the way he wanted you to be treated at that time. Verse 38, he goes on. He says, Joshua, the son of Nun, so again, a Catholic, who stands before you, <laughs> he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, 
turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. That is, go back the way you came because the people's heart failed. Remember Moses actually here, and it's interesting, he's talking to the little ones. He's talking to the second generation of Israel about the faith failure of the first generation of Israel. But you'll notice this in Deuteronomy. There are times where he says they, referring back to the fathers, and he says you, even referring to things that the fathers did. Which brings up that biblical principle, are you going to walk in the footsteps of the fathers or in the footsteps of the Lord? Or is your life going to be patterned after the previous generation? Or will it be patterned after Jesus? And if the previous generation walked in the way of the Lord, will you then pattern yourself after that? It's interesting to me. God continues to bring this up. And so he's talking to these sons and these daughters of unbelievers and grumblers. Listen, unbelief and grumbling in the tent, it's never a good thing. Not just because we're being negative. It's never good because it often produces a lame engagement. A lame engagement. What do you mean? I mean, we do stupid things we never would have done by faith. When we grumble, when we whine, we complain, we do dumb stuff. And that's exactly what Moses reminds the people they did. Verse 41. Then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We, have indeed, we will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. We didn't know that, by the way. When we saw this in Numbers, we didn't know that the Lord stopped them and warned them. All we hear is just the story that they went up and fought. Now we find out from Moses, no, God said, don't go. Don't do this foolish thing. But their heads were too full of their own grumbling, their own negativity. Moses says, I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. Remember, Hormah means destruction. And then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. By the way, there, there are times some, from time to time where it's best for a parent not to respond but to let the child feel the guilt. Guilt's not a bad thing. Guilt sometimes is necessary for us to come to the end of ourselves and turn back to the Father. And so he doesn't even listen. They're whining, they're upset. God does not pay heed. Verse 26, so you remained in Kadesh many days, Moses says, the days that you spent there. And then we set out, we turned and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea as the Lord spoke to me and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me saying, you have circled this mountain long enough. There it is again. I love when God says long enough, don't you? Right now he says long enough, enough. I mean, it's already, it was long enough at Sinai, but then you circled around for 38 years and finally God said long enough. Remember, remember the Lord's delays are not his denials. His delays are not his denials. In Israel's case, again, it was for all of this. It was for discipline. It was for the development of faith in the people and it was for God's own glory to be established. Verse 
Side story, side note. Does that bother anybody? I mean, let's just, just being human for a minute, in our natural flesh, does it ever bother you the thought that God might delay good things in your life just so he can get some more glory? Listen to this story. John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. They believed in that direct line, sin brought about blindness or deafness or dumbness or muteness or, or, or lameness or any of the problems. Physical problems, it's because you're a sinner, man. You can make a case for that. Sin's in the world, and so because of sin, we have decay and death and illness and all the stuff that we have, but they tied it directly. Who sinned that this man be born blind? And Jesus said, oh, it was neither this man that sinned nor his parents. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What? A man was born blind so God could be glorified? You know, from a human perspective, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound right. This guy's gonna suffer all these days in blindness and darkness because Oh, so that God could at, somehow, at some point get the glory? Do you think that the once born blind man complained for the days that he lost to the darkness on the first day that he saw? Do you think he went, oh man, I could have been doing this for 30 years. What's the matter with you, Lord? How come, why, why? The healed usually don't turn around and complain of their healing. And God's got a perspective that's so much greater than ours, that his glory isn't just about him. Understand this? That when we see his glory, it changes us. And he brings his glory and presents his glory because of what it does. Yes, he deserves it, absolutely, but it does something to you, it does something to me. And even after the Pharisees kicked this guy out of church, at the end of the story, John chapter nine, verse 35, Jesus heard they put him out. And finding him, I love that, Jesus went looking for him. And he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? That's what the glory of God does. It brings faith. Who is he? I, I wanna believe and Jesus said, you have both seen him, <laughs> and he is the one who is talking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him, and he got saved in that moment. I love this. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind, and he was talking about the Pharisees. The point is this, wait for the Lord when he delays there is always a moment where God says, long enough, and we see his glory. We see his glory. We'll see clearly. Yet those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why? Because we've seen the glory of the Lord. So to me, God's delay for his glory is the best reason of all for him to delay. You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn to the north, verse four. We're just gonna do the first four or five chapters. Turn to the north, he says, and command the people, saying you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. They will not be afraid of you, so, or they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them. I will not give you any of their land because 
as little as a footstep because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. I love this. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness or literally your goings. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elat, away from Etzian Geber. And we turned and passed through the, by the way in the wilderness of Moab. The Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. Verse 10, Moses said, the Amim lived there formerly. By the way, Amim means terrors. The terrible ones lived there formerly, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. And like the Anakim, which means giants, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim, terrors. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now arise, God says, cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So Moses says, so we crossed over the brook Zered, the Wadi El Arish. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years <laughs> until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Okay, far enough. Stop there. Listen up. Did the Lord hate Israel? Seems a strange question to ask, but that's what they grumbled about back in chapter 1, verse 27, because the Lord hates us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what rebellion does? What grumbling and a refusal to trust in the Lord and to look and to wait for his glory does, it causes a people to feel like God hates them. Not only does it make us do stupid things, but it blinds us to the love of God when we grumble and complain. Which brings us to the third and final introductory note. The title is Hadevarim. The thread is the heart. The theme is love. The theme of the book of Deuteronomy, Hadevarim, is love. Chapter 6, verse 4, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be on the, as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why, Moses, why? So it gets in the heart. Because you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and, and all your might or strength. That's the key verse, by the way, of the whole sermon. That's the one, that's the basis verse. That's the one, the go-to. You shall love the Lord your God. By the way, this is the first time loving God is commanded in the Bible. 
Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. You shall, in command form of the word, love the Lord your God. Moses is preaching the love of God in Deuteronomy. It's the same love we hear preached over and over in the New Testament. And here it is, you shall love the Lord your God. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. John said in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Jesus says, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 13, he says, Greater love is no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. When Moses preached to the people, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, it is a command. You can slide this right in with all the commandments of Torah law. You shall love the Lord your God. Can you command someone to love you? I tried that in junior high and high school. It never worked. <laughs> can you command someone to love you? Listen, you can if you are the definition of love. You can command someone to love you if you've shown them what love really looks like. You, you can command love if you have loved first. Because Love's not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is a choice that we make. Love, by the way, is evidenced and it is revealed in obedience. You say you love God, that's great. Show me. You say you love God, fantastic. Prove it. I gotta prove it? Well, if you love him, you're gonna. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because that's what love does. Love obeys. Love says, yes, Lord, whatever you have, whatever you want, that I will do. And it's not obedience to get love. It's obedience because we're loved. And it's the theme of the entire book. We love, John said, 1 John 4, 19. We love because, because why, brothers and sisters? Because he first loved us. That's why we love. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for the love of Christ controls us. I think I've told you before, I never liked that verse. I always like the NIV translation, the love of Christ compels us. That's cool. Yeah, his love compels me. I don't want to be controlled. Love of Christ controls me. But that's exactly what Paul wrote. And that's what he meant. And it's true that the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, Paul says, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Hadevarim, Deuteronomy, is at heart a book of love. That's title, that's thread, that's theme. Hadevarim is at heart a book of love. And that's what you're going to discover as we go through this remarkable teaching of Moses at the end of his life. Jesus this morning rightfully says to you and to me, I have loved you. Will you love me back? Will you choose to love 
Jesus with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. These are words to take to heart. Let's pray. Father, as we open this book, what a, what a blessing it is to hear your word preached by Moses. What a joy it is to recognize, Father, that we're once again going to be amazed and blessed and encouraged and built up and drawn near to you by the very words of your book. It is not an idle word for us, Lord. Indeed, it is our life. And Father, I just ask, Holy Spirit, if you would convict us of anything this morning, convict us of your love for us. Convict the world of your love for them. And may we respond to your love and obedience. I pray in Jesus' name.